Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics, which are going to educate and empower others. And give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, listeners. Hi, friends. We are really excited to continue our eligibility series, but with a special guest, Dr. Jamie Jones. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. We are really, I mean, we're always excited, but like there's a little bit of more electricity in the air having you because we have been doing an eligibility series where we are talking about the eligibility categories and we started to get a lot of questions from listeners. And so we wanted to have somebody that knows what these evaluations are, has done them and kind of just pick your brain a little bit about any of the trends that you're seeing. And then just to kind of give some clarity to certain things. So first off, though, let's start with a brief introduction about you and your background. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background? Sure. So I am a pediatric neuropsychologist, which means in addition to doing testing, I also help families develop educational and treatment plans for children and teenagers with a variety of neurodevelopmental differences. I also have a small therapy practice. In terms of what you are seeing with assessments, I know right before we got on, we were talking about some of the trends that we have seen and why, you know, really what inspired the eligibility series was school districts not qualifying kiddos. Is that something that you have been seeing as a trend or just something that you've kind of always noticed over the years? You know, I think it has always been an issue, right? It's for as yeah. long as I've been practicing, which, you know, at this point is over 20 years it has been a challenge to get kids qualified. What I have seen in the past, you know, two, three years is Mm -hmm. an increase in difficulty. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Right after, you know, the kids started going back to school, the predominant kind of reason I saw or heard for kids not getting qualified was the, oh, this is just a result of the pandemic. Right. Mm-hmm. So the child doesn't actually have these challenges. They're just manifesting because they've been at home. Or everybody is behind. So mm-hmm. your child isn't any different. Right. And, you know, I, I saw that in particular for kiddos who are autistic, right? And the districts were saying, oh, the social challenges are just a result of the pandemic and everybody's mm-hmm. falling behind mm-hmm. socially. And Okay, maybe, but toe walking generally isn't a result of the pandemic. Right. Just like Um, these little things, right, that aren't so little, but it seems convenient that, you know, we're just going to start blaming the pandemic, right? I think that that's one component that can definitely attribute, but it's, you know, if the child has autism, they have autism. (laughs) It's not because of the pandemic, right? Right. Well, and do you think part of that is, when student kids are younger and they haven't been diagnosed and they're in the like preschool, kinder, first grade, the family isn't like parents aren't with them during the school day and they only get so much information from the teachers. And so 
sometimes it takes a little bit longer for the parents to notice things once there's like more homework, um, especially like educationally related things, right? And then during the pandemic, the parents are like hyper-focused on what's happening because they're now the teachers. And Mm. you think that that, you know, had a bigger impact of like so many kids, families, I may be thinking sooner that, oh, there's a problem. Oh, I definitely think that was a component, right? And I think there were a lot of families who were kind of on the fence about whether or not their child was really struggling. And because they didn't see what happened in the classroom, it was easy to kind of say, oh, you know, things will get better or whatever. And then when they were responsible for making sure their children were paying attention or getting their work done or whatever the case may be, I think a lot of those challenges did become very glaringly apparent. What is one of the things that you have seen when, because for instance, we always say a lot of the times when the evaluations are completed by the school district, you know, they give you the numbers and, you know, you look at the little thing and it says, okay, this is below average, blah, blah. But then all of a sudden, the interpretation of that data is like how I had shared before we started recording. It was like everything seemed like this child was going to qualify. And then the conclusion was the complete opposite. All of a sudden, he doesn't qualify, right? Is that something when you're looking at school district assessments, are you seeing that as a truth that like the information that's actually in front of them is appropriate, but the interpretation is correct? Or are you seeing no? they don't have all of the information is a combination of both. What are the things that you kind of see when people find you? So I think there are some differences in that one as well, right? Like historically, the case has been that when I get evaluations done by the school, there's information that I think is missing, right? Right. It's it's not that anything was interpreted incorrectly. Mm. It's just that The people that do assessments for school districts have a lot of variability in their training. So some of them, and you both know this, right? Some of them are master's level clinicians. Some of them are PsyDs. Some of them are PhDs. And depending on the degree you have and the training you have determines what test you're able to give, Mm -hmm. right? So often historically, it's been like, well, gee, you know, this is a perfectly good evaluation for someone with a master's level amount of training. I wish they had been able to give X, Y, and Z, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of historically what's been the case. In the last two years, I have been astonished at the number of reports I've read where in reading the report, I'm like, okay, they noticed this challenge and they noticed this deficit and they're pointing out these concerns. This is, you know, I'm thinking like, good, good, good. And then (laughs) I get to the conclusion and they're like, and they're not eligible. Same, yeah. I'm like, what? (laughs) And they probably didn't include any analysis of why they're not eligible. They just- Yeah, just they're not. Not eligible. Yeah. Not eligible. And it leaves me feeling like, did you read your own report? Right, Yeah. right. Okay, good. I'm glad that you're seeing that as well because it's- really frustrating. And, you know, we're attorneys and we've gone to hundreds of IEP meetings over the years. And, you know, I feel like we have colleagues like yourself that we're able to kind of pick your brain, but it also still feels like we're taking crazy pills. <laughs> so yeah. Hear, yeah, yeah. It's good to hear that. Or, or so, even IEPs where you're like, are we all talking about the same child? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we get those situations where the school district does that like minimal assessment. There's no analysis. All signs point to eligible, but conclusion is not eligible. Family asks for an IE. We get a more qualified person to come in, does an evaluation. All of a sudden, you know, the signs point even more so because now we found even more areas of need to eligibility. But then the school still says, well, this evaluation was done outside of school. And Mm -hmm. so like, we're not going to hold it with as much weight as like the school district assessment. Have you seen situations like that where like, even though there's the expertise outside, we're trying to like discredit that? Yeah. And so part of what I get is, well, you didn't see the child in the classroom. Yeah. Right. And that's been going on for years. So the solution to that is, okay, I'll go watch the child in the classroom. (laughs) Right. And so then, you know, you do that, you write all that up, it goes in the report. And then it's like, well, but the child behaved differently that day because you were there. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, okay, so pretty much I can't win. (laughs) Right. 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 And so I've done, right. Like, so in the beginning it was, well, you know, the child act differently because they knew you right? They'd already met you. You did the evaluation. Mm -hmm. So then the solution is, okay, I'll go to the school before they meet me. And then it's like, well, but you were a stranger selected differently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's always that excuse, right? Like Mm -hmm. I've had ones where the observations occur, you know, at the beginning of the school year. And then because the district delays and delays and delays scheduling an IEP meeting, I had one recently, the independent assessment observations were in September And we didn't have the IEP part one until December and then part two in January. And their excuse was, oh, well, like this assessment's observation was done the beginning of the school year, like transition time. Since then, child has gained so much rapport with the teacher and like everything is better. And it's like, how in that short of time you go from like glaring areas of need to nothing, just a mere couple of months. Yeah. I was just going to say, certainly, right? I would expect some amount of transition and settling in with a lot of kids, Mm -hmm. but not to the extent that things are going to be that different. Yeah. And especially, you know, one of the things I see a lot, and I think we can talk about this part of the the discipline of assessments is where maybe the district assessment, like we mentioned, has some like subtests that indicate there's some challenges. Let's just point out, say, visual or auditory processing. Usually... There's like very minimal testing with auditory visual processing within a psychoed by a school psychologist. There might right. be one subtest that looks at it and there's like a low score, but then like other areas are okay. And so then the parents will say, well, what about this? I see a low score. And nine times out of 10, the answer I received from the school psychologist is, well, when you put all of these tests together and you get the aggregate score, it's, we're not in the low range. So they either say, so we don't have to worry about it or they go B, yeah, there's a low score, but we don't see it impacting the child in a school setting. But like, they really should be looking at that one subtest and saying, maybe we need to dig deeper. Yes. So talk to us about that, about like when you're doing an assessment and you find some result that leads you to believe maybe there's more going on determining like, what do you do next? Like, do you do another testing measure? Like how do you, how do you approach those situations? 
So in general, I start by doing broader based assessment, right? So looking at things in general. And yeah, anytime I see a score that's lower than others, I do more assessment in that area. I also point out that if you have an aggregate score that includes a couple low scores and a couple high scores, the aggregate is meaningless, right? Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. averages, you know, are useful if everything is roughly at the same rate or same level, right? They become meaningless if the scores are all over the place. And I think in those circumstances, much more important to look at individual scores than the aggregates. Mm. It's just so simple, but it like never is that. (laughs) We're like, okay, so we see that there are these areas like goals can be created, right? Because this is an area of the need, but yeah, we're always met with, oh no, but overall, like they're average. So it's fine. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like if they're low, they're low. Like you can't change that. That's so interesting. Yeah. And that's so funny because you as a person that does them all the time are still getting that answer. Right. And they try to like, I'm sure tap dance around you if you go. So what is something then that a parent can do? You know, we've talked a lot about independent educational evaluations But if that's not like an avenue that the parent would want to go down, are there like additional questions or resources that the parents can tap into to help navigate, you know, these evaluations or how can they get more familiar with it? I think depending on the specific area of challenge, right? The more the parents know about how that might impact the child's performance in school. So that when the school says, you know, yeah, but it's not affecting them, they have specific questions they can come back with, right? So for a kid who has problems in attention and the school's saying they're fine, right, then, you know, follow-up questions like, so do they remember to turn in their homework? Do they, you know, accurately copy down all of the directions for assignments? Are they bugging their peers, right? So trying to get more specific detail from the school. In my experience, when you start asking specific questions, they start stammering. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like, oh. well, well, yeah, he runs around the classroom all day long, but it's not impacting his learning. Right. I love that generic answer of it's not impacting learning, but yet I would... Most of the time when you get an answer, you get a statement of a behavior or a description of what's going on. You're like, how can it not impact learning? I don't understand. And it's easy for us. Like we're not in the classroom. So you would think that like, you know, if we would say, oh, I'm not sure how it impacts, but like we've been through enough IEPs. We worked with enough students. We've read enough evaluations and IEPs that usually any type of behavior that a parent tells us. I can anticipate or kind of estimate guess how that would impact behavior, right? Even down to the basic idea of if they're running around the classroom, they're not paying attention to instruction. I mean, granted, there's those kids that multitask really well and they need another activity to focus, but most of that time, that's not the case. So the idea that it's not impact. So like we can come up with those. So why the school psychologists or the team kind of can't explain that? Like, is it that lack of training that you were talking about or a variety of training that occurs that like that step further of that analysis of figuring out, you know, how, what it actually looks like in the classroom is just missing? You know, I think it's actually 
something bigger than that. So I think certainly part of it is levels of training, right? I mean, that's just a reality. The more training someone has, the you know more thoroughly they're going to be able to do an assessment. But I think another bigger problem is conflict of interest, mm. right? Right. When I do assessments for families and I make recommendations, I make recommendations based on the child's need. Yep. Right. And yep. I can certainly problem solve with parents about how to financially pay for the services, but that isn't ultimately part of my job, right? My job right. is to make recommendations yep. about, you know, ways of helping a child. And that's it, right? And people that are employed by the school have a different goal, which is to save money and stay within budgets. And I think that creates a conflict of interest for assessors who work for the school, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not just about doing what's best for the student. It's also about doing what's best for your employer. And those are often in conflict. Yeah. They, like per the law, should not be, right? Money should not be a barrier to being provided with the appropriate supports and services. But the reality of the situation is exactly what you just described. The motivation, right? And I think it's top down as well. If you have a principal who, um, you know, very rarely ever engages the special education community on their campus and or any other type of administrator, right, that maybe a school psych would need to answer to. It's all top down. So (laughs) if they're not willing to kind of see things, Amanda and I had this discussion with a specific learning disability, there are several ways. It's not this old school mentality thinking, which, you know, has the case law is out there in that And the actual law specifies different ways that a child can qualify under speech and language, or excuse me, I always say speech and language, under specific learning disability. Mm -hmm. It's not just, well, they're two years below where they need to be. That is just so frustrating to me. But yeah, you know, you have to know the law. You have to know, you know, the intricacies of the data. You have to be able to see the motivations as to why certain people are acting in a way. And that is a lot for a parent, (laughs) you know, it um, really is. I mean, it, you know, and then to go to an IEP meeting and, you know, to obviously want to advocate for your child to get your child everything they need, but still to maintain a good relationship with the school. Right. And so it's really a situation where you can't just be the supportive parent because you also have to be an advocate, which often means fighting with the school district. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be put the, you know red mark next to your name or a a target on your back that, oh, this is going to be a difficult parent, which then, you know, we've seen this. Everyone at the school knows this is the parent that advocates or everyone at the district knows. And you start to have this spiral effect of having difficulties no matter where you go, which is just so sad because, you know, I was in an IEP meeting yesterday where the, like one of the district administrators who was there, they introduced themselves as like what their job was. But then they went on this whole spiel about how they were an advocate for the kids and an advocate for the parents. And no, this is this person's new to me. So I don't know, like they could actually do a good job. But like, I've heard that before where they make these claims and I go, well, if you're truly an advocate for the family and the kid, 
you should be doing everything you can to get them services, not being the one that says no. Right. I'm an advocate, but I'm going to decline services. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand how you're, you're an advocate for the school district then. You're an advocate for the pocketbooks of the administrators is what it seems like to me. And it, you know, it makes me sad because I'm not sure when becoming an advocate for your child became a bad thing. Right. Like, why is that a bad thing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that we are talking from our experiences and yeah, more often than not, we are experiencing school districts, staff and administrators that are doing this. Right. And so we see a lot of, of the bad, but you know, there's those kind of unicorn districts. And I say unicorn because they really are few and far in between. Amanda and I always say this, like we have jobs because what is to be appropriate for a child, not even talking about the best, just what the law says appropriate. It just, it like almost never happens, right? Um, And like, to me, having all that information, all the data, and it's just, oh, they're, of course, they're going to qualify. And then they're saying no, like that is where I think the problem really lays, right? Because all of a sudden you have the right information. You're just a parent trying to get support for your child and you run into this roadblock. You know, I wanted to also kind of point out like, what would be something, I mean, obviously call us, right? We're attorneys, we're not your attorney, but you know, this may be a situation where you just can't take it on any longer. But what is something that you kind of tell people that come to you? Are are you seeing like a mix of people coming to you because the district has already determined that their child is not available? Are you seeing people for the first time? And so then you're, you're helping them kind of engage the district. What do you kind of see? All of the above. I see a lot of, and because I test a lot of preschoolers, right? So I see a lot of kiddos that are not yet eligible for their first Mm -hmm. IEP, Mm -hmm. you know, and on the other hand, I also, you know, recently have tested a lot of middle schoolers and high schoolers who are having challenges getting IEPs who clearly need them. And, you know, for those kids, it's really a vicious cycle because yeah. the school districts have been falling back on that being two years behind. Yeah. Well, if you're in kindergarten, you can't be two years behind. Yeah. <laughs> right. right? So, so there's that. And For a lot of the older kids I've been seeing, part of the reason they're not behind is Mm -hmm. parents are doing a lot to support them. Parents are basically reteaching them in the afternoon when they get home. Yep. And, you know, and several of those parents, I've said, well, I'm just going to say this and I know you're not going to like it, but part of what you're going to need to do to get the IEP is stop helping them. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and to tell a parent to basically parents. to step back and let your child right. fail, right? Right? They're like, oh no, <laughs> no, 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 no. And you know, for the the younger kids, particularly, right? Because I, you know, one of those unicorn school districts is Hermosa Beach, and I have several mm. families I work with there. That quite honestly, I've been telling them work with your teachers. Yeah, because at this stage of the game, you are probably going to get all of the support you need through the teacher and Mm. don't even deal with the official IEP for now. Mm. Kindergarten can't be two years behind. Yeah. And the teachers probably have the right resources to be able to do that. And, you know, it, it is heartbreaking when you have a parent that has provided, you know, a lot of support. And more often than not, we 
fine that the district takes credit for that. And, you know, special education law really is based on the past. It's very reactive. It is really not that proactive. Doesn't mean that we can't get things moving forward. I'm not saying that, but it feels a lot more reactive. And I'll say, you know, I was at an IEP meeting once, there was an attorney there and we were talking about the child, the parent wanted some type of goal and, you know, the school, oh, well, we're not seeing it. And, da, da, da. and we're like, well, we know this is going to be an issue because we're kind of seeing the underlying, you know, root cause and this might be a symptom, but let's try to get ahead of it. And the right. attorney like, we're not going to do that. We don't see that. And we don't have to do that. And it was just like, what? Whereas if you were with a different team, they'd be like, totally. Yes. Let's start working on that so that we can avoid, like you would want to hope that people would want to avoid it. Right. Why are we going to make sure that the fire is raging right in front of us before we go and get the fire department. But apparently, you know, for that particular district in that particular opposing council, that was their stance. And, you know, I think there's best practices. I don't think that's the best practice at all. No, <laughs> like, no. You know, how are you helping the child if, if you're not trying to be a bit more proactive, right? So that's just disappointing. Well, so Dr. Jones, what is one piece of advice that you would give parents as we're wrapping up here? Any sage wisdom or kind of, again, resources that they can kind of look to? Obviously you being a resource and we can kind of get to how they can contact you, but what's something that you would want parents to hear and and take with them after listening to us gab about all this? You know, I think the two biggest things that I find myself saying to parents is the, you know, really the importance of a good comprehensive evaluation Mm. sooner than later, Mm. right? Because the more information you have early on, the more you can plan for all of school. And because like you were just saying, you know, even a child who isn't necessarily struggling in early elementary school, given right. the challenges, you can predict things, right? Right. right. And right. I've had many sessions with families where, you know, kids are having minimal problems in first grade, but we can have conversations about, well, and here's what's going to happen when they hit fourth grade. Yeah. And here's right. what's going right. to happen when they hit middle school. So I think really, you know, the more information, the earlier on, the better. And the other thing I frequently advise families of is hiring advocates and attorneys, if that's within their means. Um, Because I think it's really beneficial to just be at an IEP meeting as a parent, right? And to have somebody there advocating for you so that when you as a parent become upset, you can just be upset and not have to still worry about getting out all the right words. I mean, I second that as well. <laughs> it's just, it's too much for any one parent at times, right? And we recognize that very early on. And, and you know, that's why we do what we are doing and try to start these conversations. And I think we'll have to have you on again. So send those questions to us because I, we got through most of the ones that, that we had and that had come in, um, but maybe Dr. Jones can come back with some more specific questions that you guys have. Um, hopefully you got as much out of this as we did, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you both. <laughs>